The title of my sermon today is Jesus Changes Everything, uh, with some lessons from the life of William Wilberforce. And really, when I say Jesus changes everything, it's funny. Words are funny, right? I'm a writer, so I'm like I'm supposed to be a word expert. So let's think about that. Jesus changes everything. When you say that, you know what I mean. Some of you know what I mean, and I'll tell you what I mean. But think of this. There are many things that Jesus cannot change. And you say, that's not possible. Well, can he change two plus two equals four? Not really. There are certain things that the Lord doesn't want to change because that is truth, right? So when we say Jesus changes everything, what we really mean actually is Jesus redeems everything that needs redemption. You understand? So it's just not about changing. It's about redeeming what is in need of redemption. It's about saving what is lost. It's about healing what is broken. Jesus in the business is in the business of that, right? Now, you know, uh, the, the scriptures say if Philippians four, that whole chapter is, is, is my favorite chapter, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me all things. Now, even the scripture, when it says all things, what does it really mean? Okay, it means all things except nothing silly, right? You know, it means all things that it's the Lord's will for me to do. All things that are redemptive, right? God is in the business of redeeming. And we've, there's good news and bad news. Whom does he call to do the things on this planet that he wants to do? That would be us, right? That's the church. So he's in the business of doing things. And he says, I have chosen you to do my will, to bring about change, right? Uh, we all know that obviously the Holy Spirit can just come in and, and, and do something. But often he uses us. He has chosen us. He has called us into relationship with him to change the world. Now, we know the first thing that Jesus does is he wants to bring us to salvation, right? That's number one. But I got more news for you. That's not everything, folks. That's the starting line. When you accept Jesus, now he can use you to change the world. All right? So I want to tell you about William Wilberforce, because William Wilberforce is claiming to fame is not just he got saved and then he was quickly translated to heaven. No. The Lord, I also assume that those of you here who say I'm a Christian, you're still here, right? You haven't been translated yet. If you're not here in the body, would you raise your hand? I'd love to see that. All right. If God has called you into relationship with himself, that's the number one change. That's the number one thing. But he then wants to use you for his purposes. It's almost like a car that has no gasoline in it, right? Is it a car? Yeah. And yet it's not able to do what it's supposed to do. That's life without Jesus. You're still a person. You can still do stuff. But until you get the gas in the tank, okay, and you will forgive me for comparing the Holy Spirit to a petroleum product, <laughs> but you get the message. When the gas gets in the tank, now the car can do what the car was created to do. Before that, it just sits there. So technically it's a car, but who, who cares if it can't get where it's supposed to go? That is us with God. So the first thing God wants to do is 
to make sure that we let him into our hearts. So then you can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he is inside me. He does many other things. I want to tell you about uh, William Wilberforce because he's a great illustration of, of some of the things that I want to, I want to touch on today. Uh, first of all, you say, who's William Wilberforce? Okay, he was born in 1759. Ringing any bells? No? A lot of people were born in 1759. Let me be more specific. Uh, <laughs> he was born in England into a, a prosperous merchant family. He was not a, an aristocrat. But uh, he was born into a prosperous uh, family. He is most famous, if you've ever heard of William Wilberforce, for one thing. He did many things, but he's most famous for one thing. He led the battle in the British Empire, in the Parliament, to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. So some of you, I'm actually curious, how many of you know who Wilberforce is? Before I I go on with this. All right, you guys can go take your cigarette break if you want. Uh, That's... (laughs) That was, that was also a joke, in case I need to clarify if there are any very, very religious people here who didn't know that I don't, I don't believe in smoking. Okay, so let's go on. Um, William Wilberforce is famous for abolishing the slave trade. That's huge. There was a movie, Amazing Grace, kind of tells that story. But the reason the title of my sermon is Jesus Changes Everything is because you would think that that's all he did. That is one of so many things that he did. When God came into his life, it's an illustration of what God can do through one person. And it's not to humble you and say, oh, what a loser I am compared to Wilberforce. It's to inspire you to say that if you give your heart to Jesus totally, you simply do not have any idea what he can do and will do through you. You don't need to know. You just need to know he wants to use you. He has called you into this world so that he can call you into relationship with him. That's the starting line. And then what he can do then is unbelievable. So Wilberforce is born into a world. Now, if you know history or if you read my book, Amazing Grace, or you know anything about this, 18th century England was a broken pagan culture, right? You picture them wearing powdered wigs. They have snuff. They have harpsichord music. They dance the minuet. They drink tea. It sounds very wonderful. But trust me when I tell you, if you think America and New York is broken and pagan and dead and sick, that culture was as bad and much worse than we are today. So imagine being born into that world. And even to make it worse, we don't say that we are an officially Christian nation in America, right? We say that we have religious liberty for all. And because we don't impose Christian faith on American people, we are really a very Christian nation in terms of how we behave and how we want to bless others and giving to the poor and all that kind of stuff. But there are many nations in history and today that say we are officially Christian. Great Britain, when they had the slave trade, when they had the most wicked, cruel abomination out of the pit of hell, they call themselves a Christian nation. Okay, so just because somebody says I am a Christian, that is utterly meaningless. You know, and I know the devil is not fooled. God is not fooled. Nobody is fooled except that person. So Wilberforce is born into a Christian nation that is so pagan and so broken that the number one social evil, if you take the gospel and Jesus out of a culture, right? And you don't preach Jesus from the pulpits. You don't preach the gospel from the pulpits. You don't preach the Bible. What do you preach? Whatever. There's plenty of churches in Manhattan that preach whatever. Okay. Believe me. I know. Unfortunately, they're preaching whatever today. 
and you go there and you, you get your ears tickled a little bit, you will never hear that Jesus died on the cross and suffered and bled for you and that you need to accept him to change your life, to give you the power to do the things you can never do without Jesus. That's the gospel. So imagine a culture, it's a Christian nation, Great Britain, all through the 1700s, they're not really preaching the gospel. They're preaching French Enlightenment rationalism. Whatever that means, who cares? We don't have time. So the bottom line is Wilberforce comes into a culture where especially the wealthy people looked down on what I would call born-again Christians, evangelicals, Bible thumpers, you guys, us guys. Like they basically said, you know, science has disproved all that silly stuff, right? Imagine the arrogance in 1750 of saying science has disproved the Bible, right? Um, well, the fact of the matter is it was a pagan culture, a broken culture, and the number one social evil when you take Jesus out of a culture was the slave trade. That was the worst. That's why he's most famous for abolishing the slave trade because when he became a Christian, he understood right away that's, that cannot stand. We cannot dare call ourselves a Christian nation and have the slave trade. So he's most famous for that. But through the culture, when you take Jesus out of a culture, everything is broken. Not just we have the slave trade. Everywhere you looked was evil. The poor, imagine living in a culture where they say, um, if you're poor and suffering in the gutter, you should be poor and suffering in the gutter. They wouldn't say that's bad karma, okay? Although that's effectively what it is, right? That they would say, I'm not going to mess with that because God has blessed me. That's why I'm not in the gutter. And God has cursed you. And I'm not going to mess with that. Imagine that worldview. That's the antithesis of what the Bible says. The Bible says when somebody's suffering, you're supposed to go and reach out and help him. The Bible says if you're blessed... You are blessed to be a blessing to those who are not blessed. That's what the scripture says, right? So imagine living in a culture. We live in a culture today where every atheist and agnostic knows I'm supposed to help the poor. I'm supposed to give back. Where do you think that idea comes from, folks? I, I hate to break it to some people, but it comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is really no other place where you get those kooky ideas, okay? And if you don't believe me, look at the world through history. The idea of helping the poor and doing all the things that the church has done for 2,000 years is effectively non-existent. Not totally, but more than mainly, hugely, effectively non-existent. So Wilberforce is in a pagan culture growing up, and all around, even though they say they're Christian, they are broken and pagan. They don't help the poor. Imagine what New York would look like if the crack epidemic of the 80s never ended, if nobody ever said, what can we do? How can we help these people? How can we, what can we do? Imagine if it just went on and on and on and we didn't help the poor. We just said, let them rot. Who cares? They're cursed. We don't care. Imagine if we didn't care about feeding those who are hungry. What kind of a culture would be living in? Well, that's when you take the gospel of Jesus out of a culture. Now, a lot of people in the West today would say, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it's ridiculous today. Because the ideas of the gospel have come into the culture largely, if I might say, through William Wilberforce and his band of merry men and women at that time. And they have so penetrated Western culture that everybody takes it for granted today. Everybody knows you're supposed to take care of the poor. Everybody knows racism is wrong. How do you know? Where'd you get that idea from? You say, well, I just, it's, it's just true. I don't know. You tell me, where do you get the idea that racism is wrong? I know where it comes from. 
Where does it come from? Just because you say so? Just because your friends will look at you funny if you're racist? Where does the idea that it's wrong come from? Okay, we don't have time to go into the details, so I'll just give the answer now. It comes from the Bible. The God of the Bible says he is no respecter of persons. We are all made in his image. We are all equal in him. And he was tortured and killed for the lowest of the low, for the highest of the high, for every color. That's the God of the Bible. Find that God outside of the Bible, and I'll give you 50 bucks after the service. (laughs) Wilberforce is born into a culture that doesn't believe any of this stuff. So the suffering in a culture where Jesus is taken out of the culture, okay? I did the research, and it's in my book, Amazing Grace. I'm not here to to sell that book, but I'm saying I don't want you to take my word for it. If you look into this, you can probably find it on Wikipedia and save yourself 10 bucks. So imagine the gospel is not in the culture. You have slavery. Of course you have slavery. Slavery existed since the beginning of time. Of course. If you don't believe that we're all made in the image of God, why wouldn't you have slavery? It's existed since the beginning of time. It wasn't invented by some white people 400 years ago. Are you kidding me? Read your history. Since the beginning of time, since human beings walked on this earth, we have had slavery. People with power use their power to oppress those who don't have power. That's the way it goes. You take the gospel out of a culture, what do you get? Down the line, every social evil. There was alcoholism in Great Britain at this time that we could never dream of. The poor were addicted to gin. The rich were addicted to claret. On the floor of parliament, during the debates, many men were drunk. This was socially accepted. I'll give you a fact. If you want to know how broken that culture was, okay, where the poor are left to rot, nobody cares about the poor, nobody has, believes in this idea we're supposed to help the poor. In that culture, it was so morally broken, if you think we're morally broken, listen to this. In London at that time, of all single women were prostitutes. The average age was 16. Now you get a picture of that culture, okay? The king of England was George III. His son, who would be George IV, was famous for, I don't know how to put it in polite society, he was famous for having 7,000 conquests during his lifetime. Imagine if the most famous man in the land was famous for that. The man who's going to be the king of your country is famous for that. It's not just history knows it. The people then knew that's the man who would be their king. And he never changed that behavior. That's who he was, unrepentant. This is the world into which William Wilberforce is born. The only Christians in that world, the only Jesus freaks in that world were the Methodists. You remember John and Charles Wesley and the Wesleyan Revival and George Whitfield? The poor people in the fields, the colliers, the colliers, the coal miners, the lowest of the low would hear, Wil- would hear Whitfield preaching in the fields and they would weep. They never heard that God loved them. They were the lowest of the low. When the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into a culture, it goes to the lowest of the low first. Jesus says, the poor, the poor, the suffering, I love them. And I, I show my love and my character by, by going to them. The high and mighty in that culture wanted nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They wanted nothing to do with helping the poor. They didn't care about the poor. The poor were poor because you've heard this a thousand times already in this sermon. So I'm going to move on. So guess what happens now? Wilberforce grows up in this culture. His mother, uh, his father dies when he's 11 years old. 
uh, and or nine or ten, forgive me, I'm forgetting my own book. Um, but his father dies, his mother gets ill, and they decide to send him to live with his aunt and uncle because it looked like the mother's not going to make it. So they want him to live with the aunt and uncle. The aunt and uncle were extremely wealthy, socially acceptable. Obviously, they're not interested in this, this Bible stuff, right? Those who were, as I said, were called Methodists because of John and Charles Wesley, uh, or they were called, this is a real insult to Christians in those days, they were called enthusiasts. Imagine Great Britain to be called an enthusiast, right? That's like, that's like Italians and Greeks. and so they, can be enthused, they can be emotional. We're British. We don't go for that holy roller stuff, crying about Jesus and stuff. Those are the, the crazy enthusiasts. They need that, right? They need the crutch. Enthusiasts, Methodists, that was the worst thing you could be called in that culture. You think Manhattan is secular? Trust me, this was worse. So Wilberforce goes to live with his aunt and uncle who are incredibly wealthy. He's, he's whatever he is, 10 years old. And what the mother and grandfather didn't know, and I find this very funny, is that the incredibly wealthy aunt and uncle that the little boy is sent to live with turn out to be Methodists. Totally sold out to Jesus. In fact, they were probably funding the entire Methodist movement. That's how wealthy they were, right? So they send their little kid to live with the aunt and uncle who are very serious about Jesus. And he learns all about Jesus. And this little boy who was brilliant, his total, his life changes. Two years later, the, the mother who, who didn't die, uh, they, they, they find out what's going on. And they say, we will not have this. We, we will not let little Billy become a Methodist. The grandfather says, if little Billy becomes a Methodist, he will never have a penny of mine. This was the most degrading thing to be one of those born again Christians in that high culture. So they bring him home and he tries to cling to his faith, but they're determined. Imagine his mother and grandfather determined to take that faith away from him. They never let him go to church, even their dead church of England. Have you ever been to those dead churches? Because they thought he might hear the scriptures read and that might fire the flames of that crazy Methodism. So by the time he goes to college, his faith has drifted away. He's not an evil person. He's not a big sinner, but he is no longer the Christian that he was. He goes to college. He falls in with somebody named William Pitt the Younger, who just happens to be the son of William Pitt the Elder. That's a, not a coincidence. Thank you for paying attention. Um, William Pitt the Elder was one of the famous statesmen of England at that time. His son, William Pitt the Younger, became friends with Wilberforce and sucks Wilberforce into saying, hey, you want to go? Politics is interesting. You want to come with me to London and we'll watch the debates on the floor of Parliament and guess what the debates were about in 1776? They were debating the fate of the colonies. Wilberforce got so sucked in, he said, this is amazing. I don't want to be a merchant like my, uh, my mother and grandfather want me to be. I, I want to go into politics. So he goes into politics at age 20, he gets a seat in Parliament, and he and William Pitt the Younger rise in the ranks of the political order so quickly that by the time William Pitt the Younger is 24 years old, get ready for this, he becomes the Prime Minister of England. Yes. Any 24-year-old Prime Ministers in the group? Very rare. Very rare. So he becomes the Prime Minister of England, and his buddy, Wilberforce, 
gets something like, you know, he goes from being like a, like a, a local uh, nobody congressman to being like a senator from New York or California. Incredible power. They're 24 years old. Wilberforce is at the peak of everything you could ever hope for. One day, around his 26th birthday, uh, he goes on a trip. He decides to take a trip to the French and Italian Rivieras, which in those days were uh, located in France and Italy. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. And uh, on a long trip, he wants to have a friend with him. So he picks his buddy, who is a guy named Isaac Milner. Now, this is comic because Isaac Milner was so gigantic. Like, we don't know how tall he was, but everybody said he was the largest man they had ever seen in their lives. Wilberforce was exactly five foot two. Uh, okay. So this guy picks this friend of his. He hadn't seen him in years to go on a trip to the French and Italian Rivieras. Now, imagine taking a horse, a coach, from England, you got to go across the channel on a boat, and then you're going to go 1,200 miles. This is like more than a two-week vacation, okay? On the trip, the man that he's picked to go with him, whose name is Isaac Milner, he is probably literally the smartest person in England at the time, okay? He was one of the most famous uh, scientists and mathematicians of that era. He was also known to be a great raconteur, teller of stories, Wilberforce says, this is going to be the greatest trip ever because my conversationalist is going to be this guy. But this brilliant Isaac Milner, who is this funny conversationalist, at some point on this trip reveals to Wilberforce that he is, you ready for it? A Methodist. How does, it, how does this happen? This is terrible. How could this happen? Over and over again. I think if God wants to get you, he just might get you. That's right. So Wilberforce, with a man who is more brilliant than anyone, I'm not making that up, finds out that this super brilliant man believes in Jesus, believes in the Bible. He's not a big talker about it, but if you want to ask him some questions, he's ready. So Wilberforce starts talking to him. By the end of this journey, this giant man with a giant intellect has crushed every intellectual objection there is to the Christian faith. And Wilberforce, because there are many people you could say, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? They'd be like, no. Like, they don't really care what's true, okay? They just want to live their lives. Wilberforce was intellectually honest. And when he saw that Christianity was true, he thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I think I've been wasting my life. He becomes a Christian, he goes back to England, and now he says, what do I do? There was no Times Square church at that time. There was no church like that at that time. He doesn't know, who, who do I talk to? All of my friends will think I've gone crazy. So he goes to talk to John Newton. Some of you know John Newton. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton knew Wilberforce when he was 11 years old in his aunt and uncle's home. Wilberforce goes to him and says, what do I do? He was not happy about coming to faith. He felt guilt that he's wasted his life, and now he's got to throw away politics. What do I do? And John Newton says to him, do not leave politics. Now imagine, there are many Christians today who would say, get out of politics quick. He says, do not leave politics. Who knows but that God has prepared you and made you for such a time as this. You can bring Jesus into that filthy world of politics. So Wilberforce, to his amazing credit, because it took huge courage, says, I will do it. Two years later, he's been praying now, God, how do you want to use me in politics? 
okay? Remember I said Jesus changes everything. Wilberforce sees everything differently. When you let Jesus into your heart, truly, okay? I don't mean in name only. When you let him into your heart, you will see the world differently. You will suddenly find love for people that you used to hate or that you never would have noticed. Weird things happen because this is real, folks. This is not some theological shift. This is inviting the God of the universe into your life. Stuff happens. Wilberforce notices that he suddenly cares about the butler who's attending him at this fancy party. He wants to share the gospel with that guy. What's going on? He suddenly notices that everything in the world bothers him. The slave trade, number one. How can we call ourselves Christians and we have the slave trade? How can we have the poor unrelieved? How can we have all these things going on and nobody cares, nobody does anything? So he writes in his journal, two years after he gets saved, he writes in his journal, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. Number one, the suppression of the slave trade, his great calling. If you've seen the movie, you know the story. He's known for that. And number two, what he calls the reformation of manners or the reformation of culture, which is kind of like saying, and everything else. Because if you've taken Jesus out of a culture and it's broken everywhere you look, in morality, in how we treat the poor, in the slave trade, if Jesus is totally out of a culture, then when you look at that culture, you say, we need to change everything. We need to bring Jesus into everything. So Wilberforce begins as a politician, but also as just a wealthy cultural leader to start bringing Jesus into everything. So it's not just legislation. I'd be the first to tell you politics matters. Christians need to be in politics. Christians need to vote. There's no doubt about that. But anybody who thinks that solves the problem is crazy. Raise your hand if you're crazy. <laughs> Wilberforce understands that we need to change the culture. The culture that allows the king of England or the king to be, to behave like that to be a drunkard and a gambler and everybody knows about it and on and on and on and on. He says, we need to change everything. So Wilberforce applies himself and in the course of his lifetime in politics, affects the world so dramatically in so many different areas. He brings Jesus into everything, okay? Everything changes. Jesus changed almost everything in that culture. So it goes from being a particularly pagan culture to being a remarkably Christian culture in the course of his lifetime, let's say over four decades. It's so staggering that by the time Wilberforce dies, it's right at the beginning of what we call the Victorian era. What's the Victorian era known for in England? Victorian, right? They care about morality. They care about the poor. On and on, So much so that we laugh about it, right? Wilberforce was used by God to change everything. Now, the first thing, of course, that had to change was Wilberforce. He had to assent to Jesus coming into his life. That's the first thing when Jesus says, I, you know, he wants to change the world. The first thing he wants to change is us. He loves us. He wants us to participate with him in everything that he wants to do. To bless the poor. To, to comfort the lonely. This world is filled with brokenness and sadness. He wants to use us. But he cannot use us if we don't let him into our hearts. And we cannot let him into our hearts part way any more than you can be part way pregnant. 
either you have let him into your heart totally and surrendered your life to him in everything, or you haven't. Now, he says you can do all things through him who will strengthen you. So it means if you say, yeah, but there's this area in my life and there's this area in my life. This area, that's okay. He says, if you want, I can change that for you. Many people are in relationships. It's just dysfunctional. They don't know how to get out of the relationship. I was in one of those uh, as a young man. And Jesus can get you out of that. Some of you have all kinds of problems. Some of you, all of us have all kinds of problems. He says, with me, you can change. Without me, good luck. So Wilberforce was such a success, and he brought Jesus into the culture, and it changed everything. Not only did it change everything in Great Britain, but all of that leapt across the Atlantic, and it touched all through Europe so that the West today, what we call the West, Europe and America, has become effectively Christian in its values, except we've forgotten why we have these values. We've forgotten why slavery is wrong. We forgot why racism is wrong. We forgot why we're supposed to care for the poor. We forgot why we're supposed to care for the hungry. Well, I'm here to remind you, it comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the point is that through Wilberforce, these ideas came into the culture so that now everybody knows right from wrong on those issues. Although, because Jesus loves everybody, he wants them to know him more than he wants them to know right from wrong on those issues. He cares more about us being with him in eternity than anything else. Well, when I say Jesus changes everything, there are three typical things just that I want to leave you with before we go. Number one, he wants us to be intellectually consistent, right? In other words, you can't say, hey, I'm a Christian, but then people look at your life and they go, wait a second, aren't you sleeping with that? What? And you say, yeah, I'm working on that. Folks, God cannot help us if we don't let him help us. You need to understand he is for you. He is not against you having a fun life. He wants you to have a meaningful, wonderful life more than you could ever dream. So you have to be intellectually consistent. You have to say, do I believe this is true? If this is true, it changes everything and it will change everything in my life eventually. I have to let him do that. Now, if you don't believe it's true, let's ask a question. Um, this morning, Pastor Tim Delina was talking about um, the, the, um, uh, the, the musician. Is it... Michael Curtis Chapman, I always forget the name. Stephen Curtis, Stephen Curtis Chapman. I, I know Stephen, and I literally can't remember his name. Think of this, okay? When we say Jesus changes everything, imagine, some of you were here this morning, you heard this story, okay? This is like maybe 10 years ago or something like that. His son was backing up in the driveway and ended up running over his little daughter, killing her. That was his sister, now, you tell me, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, if you don't believe in Jesus, what do you say to that family? Go. What do you got? You know what those people typically do if Jesus doesn't come into a situation like that? Right? 
They kill themselves. They get divorced. That's normal. Without Jesus, that's many things far less worse, far less bad than that will rip apart a family. But when you have Jesus of Nazareth in that situation, you can speak the words of truth and life and hope into the most broken thing. Number two, you can't follow Jesus alone, okay? A lot of people think, well, I I believe in Jesus. Well, good for you. But if you really believe in him, as we've already said, it's going to show in your life. And there's no way that you can really follow him and be of any use to him in changing this broken world unless you have some kind of fellowship. The scripture is clear in many cases. The most famous Hebrews uh, 10, 24. uh, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to stir up one another. Can't do that on your own. And it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Folks, if you do not hear sermons frequently, if you do not worship frequently, if you are not getting this kind of stuff frequently, God cannot just say, well, you you don't need it. He's created a world where he has told you in his scripture and where common sense will tell you, you need this. This is not extra credit. This is basic. You need this. So most of you here, this message, of course, is not for you. But I'm sure there are people listening. If you are neglecting to hang out with people who get this stuff, very quickly you will begin not to get this stuff. It drifts away. It happened to me. I lost Jesus. Wilberforce lost Jesus. It can happen. Are you saved or not saved? We're not going to have that theological debate. But I will tell you, you will be useless for God's purposes to which he has created you. You need to gather together with people who believe what you believe. So number one, you need to be intellectually consistent. You need to say, okay, I believe this is true. Therefore, it changes everything in how I see the world and how I see tragedy and how I see my own life. I need to do it in Christian community. And thirdly, this is one of the hallmarks. And this is the one that that it's got to get everybody. Unless you're a Christian, this is the nuttiest thing you've ever heard. We're called to love our enemies. What sense apart from God can that ever make? But with God, you realize if God is God, he may know something I don't know. He may be bigger than me. So when he tells me to do that, he may know what he's talking about. So I think I'm going to do that. Now, you don't have to like doing it. He doesn't say love your enemies and click your heels and leap for joy that they're your enemies. (laughs) He doesn't say leap for joy that, you know, uh, these people have wounded you in this way that you were sexually abused. No, no, no. He simply says to us. If you want me to use you to change the world, you need to obey me even in this. So even if it comes out of your mouth and it's dry, you can, out of sheer obedience to Jesus who loves you more than you can ever imagine, you can say, Lord Jesus, I don't get it, but in obedience to you, I forgive so-and-so. Do you understand the power that you will unleash when those words come out of your mouth? The words that will come out of your mouth like that, in obedience to God, unleash the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want Jesus to change everything in your life and to use you to change the lives of others, you have to obey him in that way so that the power of his Holy Spirit can be unleashed in you. 
Part of how the Holy Spirit is unleashed in you is through obedience to him. Obedience in how you treat others. Obedience in how you live sexually. Obedience in every part of your life unleashes the power of God in your life. If you get that, you know you want that. If you understand that, you know that's how, what he created me for. He created me to live with that power in my life. That through him, everything in my life can change. Through him, I can change all things. I can do things in my workplace and in my family. And I can, I can pray hope into hopeless situations. And if somebody, God forbid, runs over their, a sibling, I can speak hope even into that situation. Now, you start understanding that's not normal stuff. That's not normal stuff. You realize you could be a serial killer. Like some of you remember the son of Sam. Okay? You could have murdered a number of people. And you could participate in satanic ritual stuff and go to jail and you're never coming out. Some of you know the punchline. Jesus came into that man's life using ministers from this church. That man has joy in his life. He is a different man. Mr. Atheist, how do you help David Berkowitz? If you do not believe in Jesus of Nazareth, how do you help that man? Those people kill themselves. Without God, folks, without Jesus, the world makes no sense. Most of you can see it now in the world that we're in. People are saying things you know and I know. And most people know they're nuts. You, you don't want to say it. But you understand people are saying some crazy things. But God doesn't change. God and truth don't change. And in these crazy times, the only recipe, folks, the only thing that can cure the brokenness, the craziness is Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. Some of you have things in your life that you want to change. Some of you want to give your life to Jesus today. You've never really done it. I want to invite you to do that. I don't know how we do that here. Do you do that, Pastor Carter? Or do I do that? I want to say to those of you who you have a situation in your life, something that you say, I want it to change. I want it to be redeemed. I want it to be healed. If you move physically to this altar, God counts that as obedience to him in that moment. And he will touch you and meet you at this altar. I speak that with the authority of Jesus. God wants to enable you to do the things that you can never do without him. To get free of a besetting sin. Or to allow him to use you in a hopeless situation. Many of us have a lot of pain in our families. And folks, that's the worst pain. And the wounding that goes on there. If there is anybody here uh, who wants something to change in his or her life. Come down 
now. We probably should have some music to make this easier. There are many of you here, I know, that are going through tough things right now. I'm just going to pray, come as you feel led, especially from the balcony. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you are able to redeem all things, Lord God. And you declare to us in your scripture, in your anointed scripture, you declare to us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Lord God. Lord God, we pray for a presence of your Holy Spirit at this altar now, that those of you who have come here wanting a touch, Lord God, would get that touch, Lord God. We pray that miracles would manifest themselves, Lord God. Anybody here, Father God, that has not officially uh, declared you Lord in their life, Father God, we thank you, Lord God, that today is the day that you have chosen for them to make you Lord of their lives, to call you into their lives, to heal everything in them and everything through them. Father God, we praise you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Father God, for those that are coming, for those that are, 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 are unable to get here. Just say yes in your heart. Say yes in your heart if you're too embarrassed. Say yes in your heart. Jesus hears you. He looks on your heart. He looks on your heart. Father God, we ask right now that you would touch everyone who has come forward and that everything, Lord God, that you declare in your word, that you have prepared from before time for every person here, that you would release it to them right now, Lord God, that you would release the healing, that you would release the forgiveness, that you would release the strength to overcome the besetting sins. We pray, Father God, that you would unleash spiritual gifts, Lord, that people here would pray for the sick and they would be healed. We pray, Father God, that you would unleash gifts of evangelism here, Lord God, that people would speak the sweet words of hope and truth to their relatives and to their co-workers in such a way, Lord, that you would anoint those words and those words would change lives. Father God, we thank you, Lord God, for every person in this place. We thank you for this day, this day, Lord God, which is the beginning of the rest of our lives, Lord, this day that we mark, Lord God, December 9th, in 2018, when you called us to put these things at the foot of your cross, that you could use us in history, in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces. Father God, this is the day that you have made. You have called all these people, Lord God. You have called them. They did not come here on their own volition. You have called each soul here, Father God. And we thank you that you love them. You love them and you are going to use them. We declare it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.